Welcome to Victory Over Communism with Bill Gertz, the only program willing to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. Your host and guide to victory over communism is one of the nation's most experienced national security journalists, Bill Gertz who uses unique facts, pinpoint analysis, and exclusive interviews to identify and counter today's destructive communist ideologies. Now, Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Welcome to the podcast. The VOC podcast is about ideology, Chinese communist ideology, and American Marxism. I like to emphasize in the beginning of each program that the podcast is not about people. People are free to believe in whatever they choose. The goal of the show is to educate people to the fallacies of Marxism-Leninism and its offshoots and variants, and hopefully lead to a greater critical and honest thinking. I approach the issue from a critique and counterproposal format that seeks to go beyond anti-communism. That has its place, but for each program I present a critique of either Chinese communism or American Marxism, followed by a Judeo-Christian-based counterproposal. I then do a news section that looks at recent reports on the topic. Last is an interview portion when I talk to an expert on ideology. This episode is devoted to identifying the fallacies of American Marxism and bring listeners a better understanding of what is happening behind the scenes within the Democratic Party that I believe is being driven leftwards and in many ways is already a captive of the Marxist left. The beginning point of this leftist takeover of one of the only two major political parties in the United States goes back to the 2016 presidential elections and the appeal of socialist Bernie Sanders. Sanders gained a high degree of political traction for socialism and its Marxist offshoots. I actually believe the sole reason the Democrats turned to an aging Joe Biden for their presidential candidate was to keep Sanders from getting the nomination. Sanders says he wants socialism through the ballot box and claims he's not a communist. Whether he is a Marxist is not clear. He certainly can be said to be sympathetic towards communism in the past, having spent his honeymoon in the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Socialism for communists, I always emphasize, is a way station on the way to the false ideal of a worker's paradise, a utopia where capitalism, regarded as the source of all things bad, is eliminated. Yet, to be clear, socialism has failed in every place it was put into practice because the ideas behind it are false. First, capitalism is not the root of all problems. To the contrary, the free and open capitalist system has produced the greatest wealth and advancement for the world than any other economic system. That's a fact. Socialism and communism, by contrast, have produced unrivaled tyranny and mass death, with tens of millions killed in the course of communist revolutions. Here, the great Russian writer and freedom fighter Alexander Solzhenitsyn deserves mention. His three-volume book, The Gulag Archipelago, about the horrors of the Soviet system, was truly instrumental in ending Soviet communism once and for all. It was Solzhenitsyn who made this totally correct statement in 1974. It's still accurate today. Liberalism, he said, was inevitably displaced by radicalism. Radicalism had to surrender to socialism, and socialism could never resist communism. All communists regard socialism as an historical stage on the road to communism. And that road is widening and has more traffic than ever before. I like to compare the appeal of American Marxist socialism today to the 1940s, when Soviet and Chinese Communist Party-backed Communist Party USA reached a kind of zenith with membership of around 75,000 members in 1947. A case in point here is the example of John O. Brennan, He's a career CIA analyst who rose to prominence during the administration of Barack Obama, first as White House Deputy National Security Advisor, and then as CIA Director, a post he held from March 2013 to January 2017. 
Brennan made the startling disclosure in 2016 that when he joined the CIA in 1980, he feared that he would fail his standard polygraph or lie detector test when asked if he ever supported a group that sought the overthrow of the U.S. government. Brennan said he froze in fear and had to decide whether to lie about his past vote for Gus Hall, the CPUSA presidential candidate, and risk the polygraph machine signaling he was lying, or he could try to brazen it out and the test by declaring his vote for the CPUSA while a student. Brennan explained that he was neither a Democrat or Republican, but voted communist to voice his unhappiness with the American system of government and the need for change. Brennan said he was not a member of the Communist Party and in the speech in 2016 did not say when he voted for Gus Hall. Hall ran for president in 1972, 1976, 1980, and 1984 at the height of the Cold War when the United States squared off against the Soviet Union that was dispatched to the ash heap of history through the policies of Ronald Reagan. Declassified FBI files from what is known as Operation Solo the code name for Maurice Childs. He was a spy for the FBI who was the number two official in the CPUSA. And his revelations provided extensive and revealed the extensive ideological and financial ties to both Chinese and Soviet communists by the CPUSA. The fact that leftist communist sympathizers like Brennan could reach the highest levels of the U.S. government and intelligence community reveals a total lack of understanding about the threats posed by communism and Marxism. My view is that a person who favors the communist system over the American political and economic system should never have been allowed to hold a senior government post. This is not a question of diversity. It is a question about the judgment and views of someone in a position of government trust who felt so opposed to the American political system that he actually supported a communist for president. Brennan is symptomatic of the most recent wave of Marxist infiltration into government that began in earnest during the Obama administration that ran from 2009 to 2017. Under Trump, the problem was never really addressed head-on and thus was allowed to fester and broaden with little pushback. Then, the Marxist influence in government accelerated under the administration of President Joe Biden, a career politician with no strong views, but who bought into the Marxist and leftist agenda as a condition for running and who once in power has made political leftism a hallmark of his tenure in office. This ideological subversion also gained speed after the nationwide violent protests during the summer of 2020. Those protests were spurred by Marxists within the Black Lives Matter movement and involved widespread looting and burning. The riots and destruction helped advance the Marxist agenda item of defunding the police. America's police are a foundational pillar of law and order under the constitutional system of government in the United States. Attacking the police furthers the Marxist goal of creating a communist revolution in the United States. In Congress, we've seen numerous overt socialists and covert Marxists now hold seats. They are working to impose their ideology on the nation through influencing and ultimately taking over the Democratic Party or making sure these anti-American policies are foundational to all Democratic Party policies. One of the more prominent advocates of a socialist takeover of the country is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who, unlike Bernie Sanders, is a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, or DSA. This is the largest socialist party currently in the United States. AOC, as she's called, became part of a group of first four and then eight radical Democrats in the House that became known as the Squad. All were leftist millennials, a cohort that is the target of hardline Marxist-Leninists. AOC's Democratic Socialists of America boasts a membership of 90,000 people nationwide. Its ostensible socialist ideology calls for working within the democratic system to promote socialism. But a review of the various splinter groups within the DSA reveals that the organizational 
organization hosts several openly Marxist and Marxist-Leninist groups that advocate overthrowing the U.S. Constitution and replacing the system with a Marxist-Leninist dictatorship that under the guise of producing what they falsely assert will bring true democracy to the nation. One faction is known as the Reform and Revolution, and it's working to take over the DSA. It has announced in online posts that its ideology is based on the Marxist ideas of Vladimir Lenin, Leon Trotsky, and Rosa Luxemburg. But to me, a more important communist group to watch is a DSA faction that calls itself the Marxist Unity Group, or MUG. The group is made up in part by supporters of of an online journal known as Cosmonaut, and some of its members identify themselves as devotees of the late Czech Marxist theorist Karl Kautsky. In April of 2022, Donald Parkinson of the Marxist Unity Group and editor at Cosmonaut took part in a conference. This was very revealing in revealing his plan and the Marxist Unity Group plan for taking over the country. During the conference, he explained his group's efforts to turn the Democratic Socialists of America into a revolutionary communist party that is seeking to take control of the United States. Parkinson said current millennial leftists are not traditional Marxists and appear mainly seeking to be more extreme than liberals on issues like radical gender identity or seeking to become... (coughs) what he termed a PR department for foreign governments opposing the United States for whatever good reasons there might be, he said. Parkinson believes, like the Chinese Communist Party, that the collapse of the Soviet Union did huge damage to the cause of Marxist-Leninist revolution. The Soviet collapse has made it so hard for people to be real Marxists, he said. America's millennial communists regard AOC and her ilk as student activists, and they see a need to build up Marxism and obtain ideological hegemony. The problem is that this generation has completely failed at the task of building the party, he said. Marxism has to be the center project of building the party because the aim of Marxism is the merger of socialism and the workers' movement. The failure of the Marxist left has been to join with Democrats and hold out the hope that one day they will dominate the party, something that seems to be happening in recent years, but not in the systematic way that hardline American communists are advocating. The Marxist Unity Group has set out to end-run the Democratic Party by creating a Marxist-Leninist political party that will be installed in power through communist revolution. Marxism, Parkinson says, is a total worldview. It's not simply a critique of capitalism. It's a philosophy along with its dialectical materialism. Note the insistence on atheism in dialectical materialism, which makes ontological claims about the nature of the universe itself. He believes it's scientific, along with this historical materialism that falsely asserts history will produce communism and all communists are bound and obliged to bring it about. As I've mentioned in earlier podcasts, Marx described historical materialism as doing for modes of production what Darwin did in his atheistic ideas behind the origin of species. Yet, ultimately, as I've explained, there is no science behind Marxism-Leninism. It is not based on scientific imperial notions. All its tenets require belief and uncritical acceptance of ideological tenets. It has thus made itself into a quasi-religion. As I note in my latest book, Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy, please buy a copy, most clearly, communism most clearly mimics this faux religion. It presents itself as a version of history with a journey of deliverance played out in chapters written in a chosen language. It boasts its own priesthood, political commissars, ubiquitous throughout, and an enforced infallibility of its leadership. There are prophets and devils, along with a council of senior ayatollahs, who have power to change or reinterpret the communist historical narrative. Party loyalty equals morality. Doubting history is blasphemy, heresy, and treasonous. 
There is a chosen people, the Chinese, under Chinese communism, a promised land, China, temples, pilgrimages, faith in the face of contrary facts, deep intrusion into the personal life of each person, and the indoctrination of children into the tenets of Chinese communism. Just as religious leaders have to explain that God is infallible, even though outcomes may look horrible and religions often lose adherence due to the inability to reconcile God's justice with the world's injustice, China's communist leaders also struggle with this aspect of infallibility. Lesser communist cadres, like wayward priests, may require discipline, correction, and removal, while senior leaders, like their religious counterparts, always claim infallibility at the upper levels of the regime hierarchy. The demands of the system require that the party is always correct, and this requires the 93 million members of the CCP to engage in frequent intellectual contortions over the failures. The original socialist movement created a worldview with its own cosmology of the universe. This allowed the workers' movement to create its own world project separate from the bourgeoisie. It gave workers the confidence that they were part of a world historical movement, that world history was something that they were not only being affected by, but something that they were participating in and that they could change. Parkinson of the Marxist Unity Group declared that today's communists lost this historical consciousness, and so the solution is to reforge Marxism. The Marxist Unity Group plans to work within existing communist, Marxist, and leftist groups to create an ideological unity for the small and large groups, including both the Democratic Socialists of America and the CPUSA. The ultimate objective is to create a democratic republic. But let me be clear on this. Democratic republic has nothing to do with real democracy, as it is known today in the free world. Communists deceptively redefine democracy as a way to appeal to people who understand the true horrors of anti-democratic socialism and communism. Their version of democracy is called democratic centralism. It is the central key feature of communist regimes that rule through authoritarian or totalitarian methods that are the antithesis of true democracy. Again, during this speech, uh, Parkinson declared, quote, This movement must take the shape of a fight to abolish our existing constitution and establish a new republic. And this needs to be the kind of call that we make to the public. The existing political system, the existing institutions must be defeated if society is to progress any further. We must open that we must be open that we live in an imperialist police state and we need to take the lead in the fight to overthrow the state and establish genu a genuinely democratic system that can allow the proletariat, the working class and its allies to have the political space and the ability to move forward in the struggle for socialism and lead the struggle for a new global order, end quote. He concluded his remarks with a quote from Lenin who said that the Marxist doctrine is omnipotent because it is true. It is comprehensive and harmonious. It provides men with an integral world outlook irreconcilable with any form of superstition, reaction, or defense of bourgeois oppression. By superstition, Lenin was referring to communism's innate atheism that, I've, I, that I have identified through these podcasts as the core evil behind Marxism-Leninism, a denial of God that has paved the way for the worst forms of evil to be inflicted on mankind. In reality, there is nothing true in Marxist doctrine. What it offers is a false vision and a false hope that has fooled millions of people into believing communism is the ultimate atheistic and messianic solution for all the world's ill. The Cosmonaut, the journal of the Marxist Unity Group, declares on its webpage that Marxists in the past uh, have been holding too many ideas and not enough action. Today, the American communists see the situation as the opposite, with dedicated Marxists like Antifa taking direct action but without a convincing vision or ideology of a better world. 
Failures of socialism have left communism's vision of humanity in a classless society as something as a disregarded fantasy, the communists are saying. As, uh, as the cosmonaut declared, at best, it is the silent god of a negative theology, a desperate mantra of abstract negation with no plausible hope to be found in the existing tendencies of capitalist society. The Marxist unity group wants to return to what it calls scientific socialism that sees as a panacea that it sees as a panacea for advancing communist revolution. Marx and Engels developed not only a Marxist political strategy but also a materialist conception of history that if properly used will be a weapon for American Marxists to organize the proletariat in its struggle to produce their supposed utopia of communism. American communists, like those inside the DSA, are working to create a new Marxist ideology that will be used to set up institutions for the 21st century based on the pseudoscientific theories of Marxist history. The slogan for the MUG is Make Socialism Scientific Again. Its distorted vision is a future where the world is classless, a classless community of humanity, finally free of exploitation and oppression. In a single word, communism. The founding statement of the Marxist Unity Group is really their game plan for political struggle to take over the DSA, the first step which will be to remove the D- DSA from the Democratic Party and what it regards as other capitalist influences. The goal is to cultivate a popular mandate for revolution by running militant socialist candidates for public office while simultaneously organizing grassroots institutions of working class power. The plan calls for party-affiliated media, community services, mutual aid, and defensive organizations through nurture through nurturing a vast ecosystem of communist-allied institutions, this new party will simultaneously become a mass movement, a party movement. The group said in its statement, We want socialists to treat U.S. politics as a nationwide struggle for power to fight the imperial police state and work for the global communist revolution. In place of police, the Marxist unity group calls for a people's army, that will be essentially for the defense of working-class interests. It will create organs of self-defenses, the ubiquitous political police and security services common to all communist regimes from Beijing to Havana. The communist plan also calls for abolishing capitalist armed forces in their current form, but their defense capacity will be integrated into the People's Army through a sovereign democratic process. Last will be the communist fight to overthrow the Constitution. Marxist unity opposes a Constitution that was written by what it calls a holy alliance of capitalists and slavers to make the United States a perpetual oligarchy. We want socialist leaders to erode the popular legitimacy of the U.S. Constitution through combative political agitation, never bowing to the old order and always acknowledging the need for a working class revolution in the United States. Immediately upon taking power, the communists will implement a sweeping program to cement working-class political rule, shades of Lenin, Mao, and Pol Pot, and the elimination of millions of people. We will need to destroy every institution that denies people the authentic popular democracy, abolishing the Senate, the Electoral College, the Supreme Court, and the Independent Presidency. The statement says, Supreme power will rest in the hands of a popular unicameral assembly elected by proportional representation. Wealth redistribution is part of it, striving to eliminate all racial inequalities. The new socialist republic will put political power and economic resources into the hands of all racially oppressed and colonized people. This is the nightmare vision of the American communists that is being facilitated by liberals and radicals that fail to understand the power of Marxism-Leninism and the ability of its adherents to carry out this ideological agenda. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. 
Hi, this is Bill Gertz. I wanted to talk to you briefly about my latest book. It's called Deceiving the Sky, Inside Communist China's Drive for Global Supremacy. This is the most important book you can read to fully understand the threat posed by the Chinese Communist government. I urge you to get a copy today. It can be got, found at my website, The Gertz File. That's GertzFile.com or at the book site called DeceivingTheSky.com. If you enjoy listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, please consider helping Bill with his important work of educating patriots just like you about how communism is very real and even more dangerous than ever before. Your donation to the Victory Over Communism program will help expand its reach across America and throughout the world. In fact, you'll be helping to provide the kind of information that may well make its way behind the new Iron Curtain and the Great Firewall of China and inspire those living under communism to seek freedom. Supporting the Victory Over Communism program is easy. Just visit the program website, victoryovercommunism.net, and click on the link at the bottom to gofundme.com. Again, just visit victoryovercommunism.net and click on the link to gofundme.com. Thanks for listening, and God bless America. You're listening to Victory Over Communism, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. This is the counterproposal section where I move beyond simply critiquing communism and Marxism and look to find foundational solutions to the problems those ideologies claim to solve but can never do so. The counterproposal is based on the divine principles, a new truth first produced by the late Reverend Sun Myung Moon. These profound teachings offer real solutions to the problems plaguing mankind. They offer a new and modern understanding of Judeo-Christian teachings and show how God has been working through history to restore humankind. For this episode, I'm going to address practical applications of what I'm calling the VOC worldview. The great failing of the West to date has not been a, scar a scarcity of great truths, but rather the inability to put these truths into practice. It is not my intention to introduce the VOC worldview as a teaching without implication for daily life. On the contrary, the origins of the VOC worldview are in the intimate experience of men and women with God and the realities of life. Clearly, this truth is capable of tremendous impact on the actual life of people in society. The VOC worldview leads directly to a particular lifestyle, a God-centered way of life. When God becomes the center of each person's life, all religious people and people of conscience are drawn together in unity. For this to happen, the VOC worldview must be actively applied in a program of character building. First, there are three pillars of a good society in the VOC worldview. They include understanding God, knowing the place of the family, and the concept of unselfish love. Each of these is integral to the VOC worldview. First, on God. God is the bedrock foundation of a good and just society, and belief in God is the basis of the VOC worldview. People need to understand that God is the ultimate source of the power of life. It is essential, then, that each person know God in order to reach fulfillment as an individual being and in order to contribute to the fulfillment of family, community, nation, and ultimately the world. Next is the family. The family is the single institution that God designed as part of his original plan for creation. The family which begins with the unity of husband and wife, is the basic unit in the sight of God because it is here that his ideal can be realized. Within the family, love can blossom and reach fulfillment, and that is the very purpose of creation. Additionally, the family is a kind of school of love, and the community, nation, and world are extensions of the family. Next, unselfish love. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but not have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. 
That's from 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 3. Love is the essence of life. Through love, God can fulfill the purpose of his creation, and people can fulfill the purpose of life. The real evil of communist philosophy is the substitution of hate for love. Although Marx protested against the dehumanization of the worker, there is no greater dehumanization than robbing the human heart of sentiments of love and in place inflaming grievances and resentments. Hate isolates people from God. As the Bible says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That's 1 John 4, 8. Yet in our world can be found many kinds of love. How can we distinguish God's love from other forms of love? God's love is unselfish love. God is the pure and loving parent. He seeks only the well-being and happiness of his children. He constantly sacrifices himself for the sake of his children. This is genuine love. Well, selfish love will draw people away from God. Unselfish love will always seek to unite everyone with God. Selfish love is the source of evil and the root of human problems. The VOC worldview promotes this idea of unselfish love, pure love, God's love. This alone can unite humankind with God and give people true fulfillment and joy. A truly good society will never come about unless it is built on the three pillars of God, family, and this idea of unselfish love. So, what is the goal of life? It is eternal joy with God. It is pointless to begin a great undertaking without a clear goal. When you take a trip, you have your destination to to be clear. Each of our lives is certainly the greatest personal undertaking we can imagine, and yet many people live without clearly understanding their goals in life. Other people formulate goals, but these goals may not be the same as the purpose that God intended for them. In either case, the individual is headed for frustration in life. The purpose for which God created men and women is to receive God's love and to return love to God. That purpose must be our life's goal. We are created to fulfill the love of God as the children of God. When we do that, we satisfy God and we too are satisfied. For this reason, the religious question has always been, what is the will of God for me? When we have answered this, we have identified our goal in life. So, I'm going to make three recommendations. First, we need to establish a relationship with God as a child of God. To become a child of God, the first step, simple as it may seem, is to realize our identity as children of God. There is no one who is closer to the parents than children. Certainly servants, neighbors, or friends of the parents don't share the same intimate relationship of love as children do. Children who do not recognize their identity as a source are a source of great concern to the parent. Therefore, the profound realization that we are children of God is the first step towards giving joy to God. Second is to obtain eternal life. By eternal life, I mean the attainment of the highest stage of spiritual development. Each of us must have as our goal the securing of eternal life. This can only be achieved by diligent application of God-centered principles here on earth. These principles are outlined in the VOC worldview. Third, we have to achieve fulfillment in life. We want to be happy. God wants us to be happy. The purpose of creation is that we are happy, and yet human life is plagued by unhappiness. The reason is because we do not live with the dramatic awareness that we have this relationship with God as his children and destined to live an eternal life with him. God has invested vast potential for genius in each of us. He has given us every imaginable gift. When we are able to understand our true identity, this potential will be realized in our lives. When one has fully developed his or her God-given potential, that person feels happy and has achieved fulfillment in life. The VOC worldview is a key part of a movement seeking two things. One, winning over communism, and two, creating a moral world. This God-centered worldview is essential to achieving these goals. Both are achieved when we take these principles and apply them in our lives. 
What I'm presenting here in the VOC counterproposal is a real-world yet spiritual way of battling and ultimately defeating communism ideologically. Since it was first promulgated in the 1800s, regular attempts have been made to contain communism, militarily, economically, and politically. Still, the democratic world is losing ground in this battle. There's no easy way, no cheap way to halt the spread of communism. What is urgently needed is to first change our way of life. We need to apply a God-centered belief combined with a way of life. At that point, the tide that has been running against us will turn. Furthermore, communism will not be defeated unless America is strong. America was created as one nation under God, as we have said in the Pledge of Allegiance. However, God's ideal is the creation of one world under God. This will be the fulfillment of the one brotherhood of humankind under the fatherhood of God. This will happen when God becomes real to all people. We need to make the defeat of communism a global movement. Communism cannot be defeated and a new moral world cannot be brought about without a strong united global movement. Communism is global and does not recognize national boundaries. Furthermore, communism has a global strategy. Without responding with a global strategy, we won't win. So what can we do to assure that our love is unselfish love? How can we identify unselfish love? First, unselfish love starts with honesty. The history of selfish love is a history of dishonesty. According to the biblical account of the fall of man, the human fall is associated with dishonesty. The first woman listened to the lie of the serpent rather than the truth of God. Regardless of how we interpret the origin story, there is a profound truth expressed here. Dishonesty destroys love and breeds mistrust. If you love someone, you must first be honest with them. Honesty brings trust and an environment where love can flourish. Unselfish love is pure. An unselfish person must preserve purity of heart in relations, and especially towards his or her spouse. This requires complete fidelity, tragically lacking in many marriages today. The loss of purity brought about by immoral conduct is poison to the marriage relationship, which is the center of family life. In the same way, each of us must maintain purity of heart in all of our relationships. The patriot is the person who keeps a pure heart of devotion for the country. Likewise, the saint and true child of God is the person who keeps purity of heart towards God. Unselfish love is also compassionate. The compassionate heart is generous and forgiving. This type of attitude naturally creates harmony and unity, while cold-heartedness causes separation and friction. No one wants to be treated without feeling. We are not computers. Our value cannot be measured by our efficiency. The greatest expressions of human compassion are sincere tears shed out of love for one another. This is the most beautiful thing in the world. Unselfish love also is expressed through service. The final test of unselfishness is a willingness to serve. That service brings joy. Service is an act of giving. We give our knowledge, talent, time, effort, and heart when we serve others. Only by serving someone can we be able to understand them. These are not abstract theories or idea. They are tests of unselfish love. When we are honest, pure, compassionate, and serving to others, then we are loving them unselfishly. When we extend honesty, purity, compassion, and service to our spouse and family, we know that we are loving them unselfishly. The same is true of our country, the world, and ultimately God. Am I honest with God? Do I have purity of heart towards God? Am I compassionate and serving towards God? When we can answer yes to these questions, we are loving God unselfishly. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Welcome back. For the news portion of the podcast, I'm going to discuss a recent article in the journal American Greatness by former Congressman Thaddeus McCotter, who notes that a forgetful society lives on the precipice of history's abyss. He quotes the author Lloyd Billingsley as warning the struggle against genocide is the struggle of memory against forgetting. 
He was referring to the horror of the communist Khmer Rouge takeover of Cambodia in 1975 that produced the killing of over 2 million people, including children who were clubbed to death and babies that were murdered by communists who were motivated by Marxism-Leninism that ruthlessly attempted to create a communist society through inhuman barbarity. It's a lesson of history that humanity ignores at its peril. It began after Prince Nordam Sihanouk, the, the leader of Cambodia, left exile in China and became the titular leader of Cambodia's royal government of national union. His organization was easily taken over by Cambodia's Khmer Rouge communists. The Cambodian communists almost overnight achieved a textbook objective of communists everywhere, a coalition that cloaked them with respectability and put at their disposal the resources of others. Once stigmatized as foreign agents, the Cambodian communists before that time had been unable to attract popular support. But with Sihanouk as their coalition tool, they were able to gain total power in what they euphemistically called democratic Cambodia. The Khmer Rouge then went on a killing spree of purging the population and emptying entire cities. In assaulting the material manifestations of Cambodia, culture, and civilizations, the communists struck at the concepts the objects of their fury symbolized. It was an all-out ideological assault and systematic attempt to undermine or eliminate entirely the traditional concepts of family, home, religion, education, commerce, and technology that formed the foundations of a society and proclaiming an end to 2,000 years of Cambodian history. Human dignity and core liberties were immediately ended by the communist regime, and the cities and large villages were arbitrarily emptied. People were forced out of their homes, hospitals, everywhere. Residents were sent to the countryside and the jungles. No dissent was too small to go unpublished. One man said to the communists, Your order won't work. How will we get to our destination without a car? He was told by one of the communist Khmer Rouge, Now is the time of revolution, and you don't talk back. The soldier shouted in response. He then sprayed the man with bursts of machine gun fire and was immediately killed, along with several others around him. All free speech brought a death sentence. How eerily similar to the present are the echoes of the edict of the Khmer Rouge communist officer who said, after shouting a vocal dissident down, In times of revolution, protest is forbidden. Parental rights were abolished. The family unit decimated by communist design. Children were singled out for the most intensive brainwashing, calculated to estrange them further from their parents and transfer their loyalty from family to the communist regime. Students were only taught revolutionary thinking and the aims of the Khmer Rouge struggle and how to detect enemies of both. As a result, children were turned into Little Khmer Rouge spies reporting everything that was said at home. Re-education sessions were held for those who were not starved, shot, or dying of treatable diseases that the communist regime potentially useful in their new democratic Cambodia. As part of its control, the Khmer Rouge created a new mental illness, what they called memory sickness, those who thought too much of pre-communist Cambodia. Those accused of this malady were forced to cut their rice ration in half, and many starved to death. The goal of the Khmer Rouge was to create true communism by eradicating everything from the previous era. One official declared, To build a democratic Cambodia by renewing everything on a new basis— to do away with every reminder of colonial imperialist culture, whether visible or tangible or in a person's mind, to rebuild our new Cambodia. One million men is enough. Prisoners of war, people expelled from cities and villages controlled by the government, are no longer needed, and local chiefs are free to dispose of them as they please. By 1979, the killing fields were stilled. The Khmer Rouge's tyrannical rule of Cambodia was in history's dustbin, but its butchers were not before the bar of justice. For those Khmer Rouge who were not internally purged by the regime, the wheels of justice ground far longer than did the wheel of history. Decades passed, ultimately trials were held, though justice wrought was scant. 
Given the depths of the Khmer Rouge's crimes against humanity, it is impossible to imagine a justice that would have been comprehensive. Still, one could hope for more than the meager justice meted out to those bloodthirsty bastards. This lesson of history, paid for by the suffering and slaughter of the Cambodian people, was cavalierly lost in the midst of memory and indifference. The lesson of Cambodia is that we must never forget this killing fields and that the murderers that carried it out must be brought to justice. Historical ignorance isn't bliss, it's suicide. The Cambodian example is not an isolated event. It had been repeated earlier in Russia, China, Eastern Europe, Cuba, and elsewhere. It's imperative that each of us learns the truth about communism and remembers its crimes against humanity, crimes that emanate from its atheisms that has been used to treat people as spiritless animals to be slaughtered in pursuit of the workers' paradise. I'll be right back after a short break. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz. Featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Stand by for more after these important messages. I spoke to you earlier about my book, Deceiving the Sky. I also wanted to urge you to take a look at another book that I wrote called I-War, War and Peace in the Information Age. We live in an information age, and yet we're getting bombarded with enemy propaganda coming at us from all different directions. Uh, IWAR really helps expose what we need to do and how we need to counter it. I urge you to get a copy. The book can be found at iwarbook.com or at my website, thegertzfile.com. You're listening to Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz, featuring exclusive interviews with today's top newsmakers and trendsetters. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. I'm joined on the podcast now by C. Bradley Thompson, a professor of political science at Clemson University and director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. I recently came across a series of short five-minute videos produced by Prager University that featured Brad in excellent presentations on Marxism. The videos were done after Professor Thompson made an important presentation back in 2012 on the attractiveness of Marxism to America's youth. Brad, welcome to the program. Hi, Bill. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. Yeah, tell us a little bit about how you uh, got into the uh, the PragerU uh, broadcast, uh, going back to your, uh, your uh, I guess it was a speech or essay on uh, the attraction of Marxism to young people. Yeah, that's right. So I first delivered a speech uh, at the Foundation for Economic Education, um, uh, that was titled Why Marxism? And I was trying to understand how and why it is that so many intelligent people um, are attracted to Marxism, despite everything that we know about uh, Marxism in practice. Marxism in practice has, of course, killed over, murdered over 100 million people uh, in the years between 1917 and 1989. It's the most genocidal ideology ever invented uh, by humankind. And so my the question that I set for myself is, how is it, why is it that so many otherwise uh, intelligent people are attracted to this genocidal um, ideology? Yeah, it's it, it is surprising. Uh, we kind of thought with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91 that, you know, that uh, uh, communism was on the ash heap of history and it seems to be making a comeback. Uh, what do you what do you think? What's behind the comeback of Marxism? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the comeback of Marxism is really quite remarkable. I started university in 1978. And if you went to a college bookstore in that year um, at any university or college in North America, you would undoubtedly find all kinds of books um, by Marx or about Marx. Um, but then something strange happened right after the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
um, all of a sudden I noticed that marks started disappearing from the shelves of university bookstores, which is to suggest that Marx was no longer being taught. And I think what happened was Marxism, pure Marxism, did go underground for a few years, but of course it was reborn. It was reborn at the turn of the century, and but it, it was a new kind of Marxism. It wasn't the classical scientific socialism of Marx. It was a new kind of postmodern Marxism, um, uh, updated to the world in which we live, right? And so what you end up seeing, right, is, is Marxism is no longer about, for instance, the class struggle. Marxism is now about the liberation of various ethnic, racial, uh, sexual, uh, gender um, uh, groups um, against um, still the enemy is and always will be capitalist society. So that the enemy has never changed for the Marxists, but the but the way in which they think about it, the way in which they uh, attack capitalism, uh, has changed, and and that's the world in which we live today. So Marxism, Marxism, despite everything, right, is not only is it not dead, but it's clearly making a comeback um, in American culture. And if you go to a university bookstore today, you are now starting to see, for the first time in a couple of decades, you're starting to see Marx on bookshelves again. But more importantly, you know, Marx has been, in a sense. Uh, to use a Burkean term, refracted through the culture, and it, you know is is now taught um, not under the the name Marxism so much, but under all of these other ideologies. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, you noted that uh, it doesn't seem that Marx's philosophy and theories, like historical materialism and dialectical materialism, aren't the main motivations for Marxists now. They, it appears the idea of offering utopian solutions through a type of secular religion. I agree with this. Can you uh, give me your take on that too? How, how Marxism is kind of like a, based on really on beliefs, not really scientific socialism. Yeah, that's right. So the science and scientific socialism is gone. That no longer exists uh, as a part of, of Marxism. Um, and, but my position um, is that that what was attractive about Marxism, even the original Marxism um, in the late 19th and throughout, you know, sort of at least the first half uh, of the 20th century, is that the appeal, um, the appeal uh, of Marxism, I don't, in my view, was never, you know, dialectical materialism, right? It was not mm -hmm. the economic interpretation of history. My position is that Marx is first and foremost a master psychologist and most importantly a moral philosophy right so you have to ask the question how is it why is it right that many young men and women uh beginning in um well really throughout the entire 20th century but let's say uh beginning in the 1960s why would they go into the jungles of peru uh or or colombia and spend uh, several decades in, in, in the jungles of trying to foment Marxist revolution if they were not deeply, philosophically, morally committed uh, to the Marxian ideal. And I think in the end, to truly understand what Marxism is about, I mean, you can throw out Das Kapital, you can throw out the Communist Manifesto, Really, it comes down to what I call the three verses of the holy book of Marxism. I mean, Marxism, in my view, can be summed up in three principles. The first is, and this is from the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844, it's the following idea, quote, the enemy of being is having. That's Marx from the Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts. And you can see that as the source of the modern environmentalist movement. The mm -hmm. idea here is that um, that the ultimate form of immorality is the idea of self-interest. Uh, self-interest, particularly as it, it is expressed in the gain of material wealth. So the enemy of being is having. In other words, it's bad to have bad to have more than your basic fundamental needs uh, to live. The second holy verse of, of, the, of Marxism <clears throat> is, I think, it's the core. This is the core principle, and it's a famous slogan of Marx, which is, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Mm -hmm. 
That is the moral core uh, of, of Marxism. And if you think about what it really means, and I think this is part of the larger appeal of Marxism, this idea from each according to his ability to each according to his need is really no different than the moral premises of modern 20th century liberalism. Mm -hmm. uh, if you read the works of the great post-World War II modern moral theorist, uh, um, John Rawls, I mean, th that in effect, that Marxian line sums up effectively what John Rawls, the father of modern liberalism, uh, believes. And it is the source of all redistributionist ethics. The final verse in the Holy Book of Marx uh, says that philosophers have only interpreted the world. The point is to change it, right? And what that suggests is that, and, we, and we're living it today, what it suggests is that you have a moral obligation to go out and 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 change the world and by change the world it's by ch it's change the world by any and all means whatsoever uh which is and and the classic embodiment of of that principle in our world today would be antifa right mm -hmm. antifa yeah. lives that principle every single day mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's really amazing to me. Yeah, this is that's uh, one of the goal of the podcast is to educate people to these things. And um, uh, I've looked at you know a lot of the leftists. Uh, you know, I followed the new left going back from the, the days where they got their heads cracked in Chicago in '68, and they decided to do what they call the long march through the institutions of America. And they seem to have created uh, a great success, starting with the Obama administration and now with the Biden administration. Um, why, why, is there, why is there so many uh, institutions, whether it's media, business, uh, kind of jumping on the Marxist or neo-Marxist bandwagon? Um, that's a complicated question. Um, I would only just slightly differ from you in saying that this is a process, this long march through the institutions is a process that's really been going, going on since the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And uh, cultural change never happens overnight. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that takes, it's a process that takes place over the course of decades. And today's modern Marxist has become much, much more patient than the revolutionaries that led uh, the Russian Revolution in 1917. Um, they're okay. They don't need revolution, total revolution now. What they're doing is they're playing the long game. And the long game is to weasel your way um, into all of the first political and then cultural uh, institutions of the country. And I mean, we're seeing this obviously today I mean, the, the single most important takeover um, by the Marxian left of American institutions was first the universities, which began in, well, in many ways, to be perfectly honest, it really began, started in the 1930s uh, and then picked up steam in the 1960s and 70s. And now, of course, the left is entirely hegemonic in American universities. But the second place and in many ways, now the, I think the most important place where you see um, this cultural hegemony of the left is in America's government school system, right? The government schools mm -hmm. now are are entirely, as in 100%, under the control of the cultural left, mm -hmm. and um, they control all of the major institutions associated with education in the United States. And so, I mean, I think, I mean, and of course, we see it in many other institutions. We see it in Hollywood. We see it in major media. And of course, now we see it uh, most dramatically uh, in corporate America. Um, you know, we yeah. saw it, you know, last month with uh, with Bud Light and right. the month before that with Disney, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, last question. Uh, what do we what do we do? I mean, I'm doing my part through education. You're doing the PragerU videos. What What's the solution? How can we reach especially young people with the message of understanding that these ideas are not only false, but they ultimately lead to major death and destruction, as we've seen in every country where uh, Marxism has come to power? 
Yeah, that's the $64,000 question. And I think, I mean, there are several answers to it. The first is that ordinary everyday Americans can't just go along to get along anymore. I mean, we need some kind of cultural awakening. Uh, it, It can't be just the ever diminishing numbers of conservative and libertarian and classical liberal intellectuals Um, It has to be, in many ways, the last readout is the American people. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they they really have to, I think, start paying much, much more attention to what's going on in our culture. And I think we are seeing that. For instance, the revolt in the last uh, two and three years of America's mothers against what is being taught um, in the government school system. That that has been, I mean, in many ways, that's been uh, the most important <clears throat> uh, resistance to this movement uh, in recent decades. I would say, however, that the single most important social movement in the United States to fight this trend is the homeschooling movement, right? Mm-hmm. That in fact, I would say that the homeschooling movement is the single most important social revolution in this country since the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. We've been talking with C. Bradley Thompson, professor of political science at Clemson University and director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Brad, how do people uh, access your uh, videos and uh, do you have a social media presence? Yes, I do. So I think the first place to go would be to my Substack, which is The Redneck Intellectual. Uh, you can just Google The Redneck Intellectual or go to C. Bradley Thompson, all one word, dot substack dot com. Um, and I have a new book coming out uh, in the next few weeks uh, that you, you will be able to get on Amazon titled What America Is. Great. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Bill, thank you very much. Have a great day. That's it for this episode of Victory Over Communism. Uh, Tune in again in a couple of weeks for a new podcast. Thanks for listening to Victory Over Communism with award-winning national security journalist Bill Gertz, the only program in the free world unafraid to pull back the curtain of communism to reveal how the Communist Party of China and even America's own brand of Marxism pose real threats to freedom and democracy in America and the world today. See you next time on Victory Over Communism with your host, Bill Gertz.